This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. There's no duty here. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is an award-winning and best-selling author whose works include the LA Times bestseller, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and The Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, and the upcoming book, Girly Drinks, A Feminist History of Women and Alcohol. When she isn't writing, she can be found each week co-hosting the Reading Glasses podcast. Beautiful welcomes to Mallory O'Mara. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. I know you have a really busy schedule, so it means a lot to me that you took some time out to discuss some beautiful horror with me today. Before we begin, I do like to kick each episode off with a quick quote about beauty that pertains to our topic, and I found one that I felt was pretty apt considering the emotions of the film that we're going to talk about today. The quote says, pity strains the heart, but without it, one would not notice the grief of others. Art does not avoid difficult subjects, and this requires that emotions be part of aesthetic arousal and the recognition of artistic quality. Aesthetic emotions absorb us in rapt attention with just enough distance supplied by the containment of art that we reap the intense insight available by means of emotion without turning away from that which arouses it. I will reveal who mentioned that a little bit later, but first... Mallory, let's talk a little bit about you and horror. How did you uh, start your your whole journey with this this wonderful genre? Oh, I, I've always been really attracted to horror. I I think it's because I'm attracted to hidden things, and that's really what horror is. It's a whole genre that explores the things that we're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> it's legends, it's myths, it's underlying causes, it's secrets, and uh, as a kid, I was always really really attracted to that. I uh, am very, very close with my maternal grandfather. And when I was very, very little, he used to take me for a walk in the state park um, near where I grew up in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And the park is an old estate. Like it just like was one of those places that a bunch of rich people used to live, live in with like their houses for their servants and gatehouses and stables and all these places. And they turned it into a state park because it was so huge. And, but I didn't, when I was little, I didn't realize that, a bunch of a rich family had lived there. To me, it was just like a bunch of cool houses in the woods. And my grandfather always would tell me instead of, you know, oh, well, this is this is the real history of this place. He would explain, oh, see that gatehouse right there? Well, that's where Snow White lives. And that place over there, that's where the seven dwarves live. And I became very enamored with the idea that there was like a, a history and a, a hidden, hidden secrets behind everything that we saw. And that really just drew me to the horror genre. I also really love monsters. I just love anything that's on the periphery. And uh, I went from go, you know, I grew up with goosebumps. I grew up with scary stories to tell in the dark. uh, And I just loved it. Oh, wow. I love when grandparents do stuff like that. 
Uh, I had a few who, you know, and I grew up in the South, so, you know, we had our own little things too. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember them, but um, yeah, there's something magical about the world already when you're a child and when adults help children really explore that magic. I think it's such a beautiful thing. So I think it's wonderful that you got to have that experience growing up. And it's kind of like a true connection with the occult, right? They say the occult just means that which is hidden. And uh, so you, you, you connect with that hidden space, basically, is what you're saying. For sure. And that's that's my favorite thing in all of horror. Um, the, the, the moment in any horror movie, especially a haunted house movie, where, you know, they go to the library and they see if they find an old newspaper that reveals the horrible tragedy that happened at the house and like the, the story behind all of it um, really resonated with me. I just like, I, it's, it's, it's just so cool. I always want to know. And it um, translated into a career as a writer and a historian and a nonfiction author. I just always want to know the, the story behind things. And I mean, horror is just the, the best genre for that. You know, you don't get that really anywhere else. I have to agree with that. Yeah. There's so much going on just even in the creation of this genre. As I mean, as we see with your own work, you know, you, you, you uh, kind of digging up the past of Millicent Patrick and putting her back onto the fore instead of out of the periphery. And uh, yeah, good on you. I really appreciate the fact that, you know, more horror historians, please show us what we're (laughs) missing out on. So uh, thank you for, for, you know, carving in that niche a little bit here in the modern era. So before we kick off, Let's. I, I love to get our guests to introduce the film we're going to talk about, and I think that you've given a great preamble for the kind of film that we're going to talk about as well. So, so Mallory, what movie are we talking about today? We are talking about 2017's Tigers Are Not Afraid, which is written and directed by a genius, Issa Lopez, and it's an incredible, like, sort of crime fantasy horror movie that takes place in in mexico and it's about a bunch of children who are trying to survive in the aftermath of horrible drug cartels and how they've completely ravaged the city and uh things get creepy and weird and sad and uh beautiful couldn't have said it better than myself actually i was looking at my the synopsis i had uh, written up real quick and you pretty much hit beat for beat what i was gonna say indeed like the the mix of storytelling devices in this film allows for it to kind of tangibly reach out to the viewer in a way of uh, it, it not only is it showing you some real life horror and things that you aren't really aware of, which unfortunately, you know, areas in Latin America and, and, and Mexico, they have a lot to say and a lot to expose to the rest of the West that are kind of blind to it, but they do it in such a profound way that like this movie is, I, yeah, you're right. Genius. Issa Lopez just, she just put a big light on all of this in, in so many ways. Uh, so when I approached you about this, I, I think it's an easy enough uh, way to see this, or at least uh, it's easy enough to see when you see the film. But was this the first film that sprung to mind when I said beauty in horror? Or was there something specific about this one that made you go, I have to talk about this film? Well, I just want more people to talk about it. I want more people to see it. Um, normally when I talk about, when I get approached for, for podcasts and to talk about certain movies, I always try to, everyone wants me to talk about Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is great, right. but I've talked a lot about Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I always like to try to find films that I don't think are widely enough appreciated and widely enough seen. And I just want everybody in the world to watch this movie. So I was very excited uh, to be able to, that no one had claimed it and I had the chance to talk about it. 
I'm a little surprised that nobody had claimed it, especially since my first episode was a Guillermo del Toro double feature. I had uh, figured that, you know, I knew that this was in that kind of oeuvre a bit with uh, the, the, the fairy tale aspects mixed with horror and real life historical events. So, but hey, there you go. Like, I hadn't seen it yet until the podcast. And, you know, you know how it goes. Circumstances. Sometimes you just, a film drops off your radar, even though you're thinking about it all the time. And I'm really happy you brought this one in because it blew me away. I got to say, this movie is... It's so when I'm thinking philosophically, thinking of beauty, it's visually beautiful. The structure of it is beautiful, but more importantly, the humanity in this film is is just palpably breathtaking to me. What then would be for you one of the more kind of powerful parts of the film that kind of like keeps you coming back to it. Well, I mean, it's a really perfect movie to talk about on a, on a show that uh, that's dedicated to beauty and horror. I mean, the whole movie is, is about finding beauty uh, and hope in a Mm -hmm. horrifying situation. And there's so many incredible moments in the film that, that show that, you know, this, the, the setting is, concrete broken furniture torn thing like everything is broken in this movie and then you have the heart of it these these kids who are trying to still make a life and be alive and and find hope in a future and it's just it's such a it's a it's a sad film it's definitely not a happy-go-lucky feel-good film that you pop in at the end of the day you go have to go into this movie with a sense of purpose but i've ended up showing it to so many people and watching it so many times uh, because of that sense of hope and resilience and defiance at the heart of it. And uh, it's just uh, uplifting is the wrong word, but it's uh, it's almost like an empowering movie. Exactly. When you said the word uplifting, the word empowering immediately came to my mind as well. Uh, Seeing Estrella's whole character arc throughout this film, I think is so incredible. The hope. I love that you brought that up. You know, she starts from a position of, I guess in her area, uh, privilege would be where she's starting since, you know, we do see these kids who are essentially just like the lost boys with, with Peter Pan, you know, they're, they're, they're orphaned. They don't have anything. One of them steals a gun from one of the cartel leaders and he's just about to shoot him right then and there. So that was enough for us to know that, uh, shiny as a name, uh, that Shane is part of this whole world that's just ravaged. He is a ravaged figure. So when we meet Estrella, she's in school. She's got a mom. She's got a house. And very quickly, we see everything kind of just pulled away from her. And we go on that journey with her. And it's amazing to me that Isaloba still managed to make a story so gut-wrenching and have that semblance of hope by the end of it. Yeah, you really feel for these kids. You are, you're, when you start watching it, you're like, I will die for these children. Who do I have to kill to protect these kids? They're, they're, the performances are absolutely incredible. And that's, I think, where a lot of the beauty comes from in, in this, mm-hmm. uh, besides the magical realism elements with the, the, their stuffed animals that walk around and the, <laughs> the reoccurring animation of the, of the tiger on the walls and on the, on the, on the ground, um, is the things that these kids build out of the broken, 
you know, remnants of their city. You know, they yeah. create this, uh, when we first meet all the kids, they're living, all the boys are living on this sort of abandoned, the rooftop of this abandoned building and like the toys they make and the drawings they make on their soccer balls and the, the, the forts they make out of blankets and things that they found. Like you're so, it's beautiful. Yeah. I think it also just comes from that, the creativity. It's really unfiltered in this film for the kids. Uh, most of the time, if you've seen films like this that, that have a very similar concept, especially war-torn area, and we're going to focus on children, you know, look at what uh, Del Toro did with The Devil's Backbone. They're still put in an environment where they are controlled and oppressed by a bunch of adults. Now, granted, th- there is that in this, but it's on a more widespread kind of, you know, violent level. But nobody's telling them how to behave and what to do. And I loved that Lopez has decided to show us this. Just what would kids do if you just broke everything and left them with it? And it, I loved that fort. I loved seeing how they decorated everything and tagged it all. It's interesting, too, because, you know, you're, we're used to seeing urban landscapes kind of torn up with tagging. And, and all kinds of graffiti, but I love that there were just children's drawings all over the place. And th- that sense of whimsy to it, I think is what keeps it a little upbeat to put in scare quotes there, you know, not fully, but it, it keeps this sort of optimism throughout the whole film, even when things get really dire. And of course, then philosophically speaking, uh, if, if I think about my own work with aesthetics, then there's a communication that's coming from that. And that, you know, her whole work is being put on display that way. Uh, when you watch it, what do you feel that the film kind of communicates to you? For, I mean, for me, it really is that sense of of resilience and defiance. You know, everything in this world is telling these kids that they don't matter, that everything is hopeless, you know, that the only way forward, you know, the, the villain slash wannabe hero in this movie is, you know, this politician uh, slash mobster gangster and you know the whole film is peppered with these like ridiculous political ads about how he's the way of the future and it would be there's definitely a parallel version of this movie where those kids all they want to do is get guns and shoot and join in with that but these kids don't you know they want to play soccer they want to learn things they want to have fun and that um that I mean, I guess in this world, you would almost call it deviance in the, in the face of, of all of that is, uh, is so, is so beautiful. And that's really what it, what it shows to me. Yeah. I'm right there with you on this. Uh, the, the resilience that these kids show and just the desire to be a kid, I think is something we can all relate to. We all have our own ways of being kind of taken away from our childhood. And there are those of us who accept that and just kind of go with the flow and there are those of us who will always hold on to that childlike wonder and drive no matter what we're doing. I mean, unfortunately, uh, yeah, you, when you when you reach 20 plus, you got to pay the bills, right? <laughs> so uh, you're going to do whatever the hell you have to do to get those bills paid. But I think that, you know, there's a difference in, in just letting the world beat you down and do it their way and carving your own way. And I think there's something to be said with showing children do that in probably the most dire circumstances that you could possibly put them in, in an understandably modern urban way. I think that that 
it may seem foreign to some people when they see how this world is put together. There is a fantastical element to it, but I also think that it's close enough to home that it it's kind of hits like a Mack truck, really. So I want to bring in that quote uh, real quick that I, that I brought up at the beginning of it. So the, the quote about pity and how it connects us to the actual source of the art that we're uh, you know, engaging with. That comes from a scholar by the name of Carolyn Korsmeyer. I've mentioned her before here on the show. So frequent listeners, you're going to be familiar with that name. And this is from an article she wrote called Terrible Beauties, in which she's talking about the beauty that lies within terrible things. How often when we talk about beauty, we're talking about things that give us pleasure. You know, they elate us. But how can we account for things that give us a pleasure despite causing us intense pain or grief? And I feel that this movie is a really good combination with this sort of theory. And I just wanted to know, like, based on that quote, I don't know if you would need to hear it again or not, or if you're reading it uh, at the moment. Like, do you feel that that kind of fits this film, at least the way I I was? Or what do you get out of the the connection there? I mean, I I think it totally fits it. You know, this um, this movie is is perfect for that. You know, there's some of the criticisms of it is that, you know, there's Spoiler alert, child deaths, not all the kids make it through this movie. Yep. And it might be hard to square how a movie where you see children die uh, is also a beautiful, yeah. hopeful film. But it is because that's life. <laughs> that's yeah. what life is. And I, I'm very, I think it was a fantastic choice for her to make it such a startling, horrifying, tragic film, because that's what makes the hope even even stronger all those contrasts you know the cuz in real life those kids die you know and yeah. not everyone not everyone makes it through uh, especially with the way that they're going through this film and trying to fight against the the corruption so and i and i think even in the depths of your, I mean, the first time I saw this movie, I cried. I, I saw this movie when it premiered at oh. Fantastic Fest, and oh. um, definitely like gut punch. But it, in the deepest parts of that, you realize that the reason why you're crying and the reason why you're sad is because this movie is affecting you so much. Uh, it's it hits so hard um, because it's she so she nails it. Yes, yes, she does. Uh, I think a lot of times when we get those responses, people who will criticize a work of art for making them feel that sort of an emotion, that's kind of a driving force for me in my work is to help people reevaluate what is it that's bothering you? What's what are you feeling? Because oftentimes we kind of run away from negative emotions. And I do feel that there's a lot in a negative emotion to learn from. If you see this child die, how are you responding? I think it says a lot about you and not in a judgmental way, but I just think it says a lot about your own past, your relationship with children, your relationship to the situation, your relationship to film as well, because it's shot beautifully. It's, it's the most beautiful, like fucked up like kid murder that you can put in a movie. <laughs> I definitely give it a trophy for most beautiful fucked up kid murder. Right. <laughs> and it's poetic in a way. I, I, I loved how she built it up and it's the kid who won't talk because he's so traumatized that when he's seeing, is it Estrella or Shine who's being attacked? Do you recall? I don't remember which, which one. So one of the older kids is being attacked by uh, the cartel leader and Moro just, uh, this, this little kid just grabs the gun and shoots him right in the leg. 
And unfortunately, he, he, you know, takes a bullet for his troubles as well. And it's the big turning point of the film. It's when all the kids decide, like, we're ending this. It's done. They've gone from running away from these guys for so long that they're like, I kind of feel like when the worst thing happens, you don't really have a what if anymore, right? For sure. I mean, it's definitely a galvanizing moment for these kids. And I, I, I think, too, it really makes them realize that, you know, they're not immortal uh, you know, they're seeing yeah. it happen to their their parents and they, they see it happening to the generation ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see a lot of moments like these in, in uh, literature and, and film that features kids is like that crossing over moment when you realize that like adulthood is coming for you and the problems of adulthood can affect you just as much as they can adults and as adults. And that's um, that's what happens to these kids. They realize that it's going to it's not just going to come for their parents. It's going to come for them, too. And they want to uh, they're very brave and they want to stand up to it yeah it's interesting too right because they they seem to be aware that it's going to affect them but it has affected the children differently in general either they're orphaned or they're kidnapped but they don't really know of what happens to these kids they're they're like uh that's the mystery for them still that's where this kind of urban legend aspect of this whole cartel sits with these kids is they know that the, the the mothers the women just get murdered they're just beaten up murdered done and then the kids, they're just like, nobody knows. Even though if we, obviously as adults, if you have any knowledge of how these cartels work, you, you kind of have an idea what's going to happen with these kids. And we see it at one point uh, when I think it was uh, Kako was his name. Or is it Chaco? I'm going to real quick. I have the list right there. When Yeah, when Kako is murdered, you see the kids in the cages. So you know they're being sold. You know that they're being used that way. And it's, it's interesting how the kids seem to be aware of that. But as you're saying, they have that, that dissonance of like, but adult problems are adult problems and our problems are our problems. And yeah, it was the moment that they lose Moro that they just kind of all grew up that day. And yet they still maintain their, their child essence, I guess, if you will, even at the end of the film. We, we, we've broached a little bit on the magical realism. You've mentioned the, the stuffed animal that came to life and, and the animations uh, with regard to the graffiti. But I do think there's something to be said about how fairy tale is used in this film. Because I think, do you think that, bas- well, I mean, you're mentioning some tales from your, your grandfather. Uh, what do you think the kind of relationship between fairy tale and horror is, at least from your perspective? Oh, I mean, they're neighbors, they're best friends. <laughs> uh, fairy tales are horror. And that, one of the reasons why I, I love this film and uh, I love fairy tales and I love fairy tales that are enmeshed with horror is I mean, when you're a kid, everything is hyperbolic. You know, that everything wants to eat you. Everything's going to kill you. Everything is so heightened. Um that it's all like, it, it always makes me laugh when people are like, Oh, can my kid handle that? I'm like, your kid thinks that there's something under their bed every night. That's going to eat them like truly and welly, absolutely going to eat them. Not metaphorically. Yes. They can handle it. Like that's how yes. kids think. So seeing those ideas and those themes on a, you know, played out on this massive scale in, in this film is so magical because it has, like you said, whimsy is a great word for it. Uh, but it has all those, those uh, moments of fantasy and, and whimsy and, and fun. But at the same time, just like a fairy tale, it quickly, quickly takes a sharp turn into darkness. Yeah, that turn is, and it takes it often too. I, I was shocked how the movie starts with just this girl in her school 
And then they say, hey, we're going to write a fairy tale. Here are your three keywords. And you hear this monologue from this really beautiful story. I'm like, oh, Estrella is going to grow up to be just like the best damn author. <laughs> she could make this The new, you know, she's going to be like, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. She's just going to be in it, uh, the new Mary Shelley, you know? And then you hear the gunshots. And I was like, oh, fuck, right. Yeah, that's that's the reality of the situation she's in. And from the moment she got home, I was like, oh, man, I don't I, I both love and hate when a movie does that to you where they show you like what could have been. Mm-hmm. And you just get yeah. there, like, can I have that movie for a moment? Though, please? <laughs> <laughs> and there, well, I think she blends it so well. There are moments when honestly, my favorite scene in the whole movie is when the kids come upon a, an abandoned mansion and they mm-hmm. find a soccer ball in there and they find this gorgeous. It must have been a giant fish tank that like disintegrated people weren't paying weren't weren't in the house it was abandoned fish are fending for themselves it must have tipped over whatever but it's a massive pool puddle in the second or third floor of this huge mansion and all these gorgeous huge goldfish koi whatever they are are still living and thriving in this puddle in the midst of this broken down mansion and all the kids are looking at the fish and it's just like this that puddle those fish in the puddle is just like the perfect encapsulation of the story and what these children are and what these children are trying to do and Um, you know, and then, you know, very quickly things get dark again, but the, for a moment, the kids are playing with the the soccer ball they found and they feel safe and they're so excited to have found this little, um, refuge in the middle of the city. Uh, it's, she, she blends those moments so well with like, oh, people shooting at children. Yeah. I I love that you brought up the the goldfish, the koi, these, these giant, beautiful, exotic fish, (laughs) Uh, because and when you're comparing them to the kids, I hadn't really thought of it until you said it just now. But another thing that makes me feel that they're connected is how no matter what, when it comes to the whimsy or how dark it gets, there's always a sense of tragedy with these kids. Because if you use that metaphor with these fish, they're surviving. Mm-hmm. Who's feeding them? How long is this going to last? You know, you kind of look at those fish and you see how beautiful they are and you're really happy they survived. But it's kind of like, you know where this is going. Those yeah. fish are not going to last in that puddle forever. <laughs> and I kind of felt that with the kids the whole way through, too. It's like, well, kind of no matter what, let's face it. They made it like they made it really clear that this cartel is like the Hydra. You cut off one head, another one takes its place. And yeah. every single step of the way, it just gets worse and worse and worse. They, they show the cops the video. They have actual proof with a guy's face of what he's doing. And like, oh, you see who that is? Fuck that. And they drive away. And it's such a tragic reality, really. I think that's probably what gets people the most is you cannot deny that. Just go there. That's what's happening. Well, that's the thing is they can't stay the fish in that puddle for very long. They have to. Even in the moment of them being in this mansion, you know, at some point they're going to have to go back out and face everything. Uh, they can't stay children forever. Exactly. And it also, it bites them too, because if they do get found, uh, they are tracked down and they are forced out. And yeah, I mean, of course it's story progression and all, but it's just this inevitable realities, especially if you have, uh, well, they have the metaphor of the tigers. Tigers are not afraid. I like how they use tigers as this uh, sense of kind of self-worth and courage, but also a raging beast. That's prowling the landscape. 
I, I love filmmaking because you can, you can, when so much of that stuff develops as the film is being made, uh, my boyfriend was listening to an interview with Issa Lopez recently that the film did not start, start out with tigers. She literally talked with, was talking to the people who were like the animal wranglers and they were like, well, we have this, or I think it was, they're like, well, we have like a rhino, we have a, an anteater, we have an armadillo. And she was like, no, none of these, none of these work. And it wasn't until they finally were like, well, we have a tiger. And she's like, I can work with that. And it's so interesting <laughs> to see that this like central theme and like central um, visual motif in the, in the movie wasn't there from go. And it really developed as she was creating the story. See, there's some beauty right there. The beauty in the creative process is always just mind blowing to me. As a creative myself, I love how indeed you just find like, hey, this is what I have. Let's make something. Just like the kids in the film, really. They, they make do with what they've got. And in a way, I think that Issa, she put that into the film with the tiger. I mean, you mentioned it now and I didn't know that. But now that you mention it, it is true. Like I kept wondering throughout the whole film, like, but why tigers, though? Like, why is this the metaphor? Because I'm not used to the tiger being a symbol of courage that way. And then the kids don't really explain it. They're just kind of like, well, tigers, though, you know, like, <laughs> that's how kids are. Yeah. Kid, I mean, it, it is really cool because that's just exactly how kids are. They hear one little story about something and they glom onto it. And especially with these growing boys who are looking for, um, you know, they have no father figures. They have no one to raise them. They have no one to show them anything about masculinity, bravery, any of those things. And it's so cool to see them trying to and both both cool and very sad to see them looking to this mythical tiger who is sort of like they they are convinced is stalking the streets of of mexico um to be to to show them what they need to do and show them how to be yeah in this case it's really just brave that's pretty much all they have because if you think about the story they have of the tiger it's just hungry and killing things yeah uh, yeah, they're like that's all you got to do. But but it's something that's like it's all they've got, and it's um yeah. and they they don't they can't watch TV, you know they no one's reading to them. They have so little, um, so much of it. Everything in their world is is made up in imagination, so they'll gl- glom onto whatever stories they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I love that they decided to put it in a kind of an urban legend kind of way as well. I I'm a sucker for urban legends. I think it's just. Especially in the South, you just grow up with them. Every little creepy road that you have, some dirt road to go to somebody's house, but you've never seen the house, we got a story for it. (laughs) What what happened there? What you can do if you flash your lights there three times? Who's going to attack you? Stuff like that. Which, of course, the locals start getting in on. And just it shapes your worldview a bit. And seeing kids do that in a film, I just it really touches my heart to see that explored and not let go of. I do feel that we let go of our folk tales a little bit too much as we get older. And I, I really adore a film that kind of forces you to remember those times a little bit. Uh, so kudos to Issa Lopez on that front. Um, it, I got a little base question for you. Cause I was like, eh, it, it, it's a fun little thing. It's not the most profound thing, but so we do have the tiger at the end of the film. Do you think that that is just confirmation that it was always real or is this something going on in Estrella's imagination? 
Are you so you're asking me if is, is this a true lady or tiger or the lady question? Is yeah. <laughs> if it's a real tiger? Yeah. Uh, no, I be real. I, I do. I I think it's 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 more magical realism. I think it's it's okay. in her mind, um, but I think it's interesting that in her mind it has gone from a cartoon tiger to a real tiger. Yes. I was what I was curious about too, because obviously, regardless of which answer it is, I think you have a good, you know, there's a good way to explain them. And uh, yeah, if you're choosing the it's a metaphor moment, then I noticed that as well. How we went from a very rudimentary drawing to this full fledged tiger, but just kind of chilling. It's like, hey, girl, uh, you did good. <laughs> and it could have. It- could have very been very well been an armadillo or something. So we're, I'm glad that it ended up being a tiger. Uh, could you imagine armadillos are not afraid? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she would have made it work because this movie's too good. Um, you know what we haven't really talked a bit about yet is the uh, quote unquote horror of it all. I mean, we talked about the real world horror aspects of it, but uh, there be ghosts in this movie. And some pretty interesting ones at that. How did these ghosts, uh, how did you respond to them the first time you saw them? Oh, I love it. I love a grief metaphor. Um, and I love the idea of these kids, especially Estrella, trying to um, uh, avenge her mom, find her mom. There's so many beautiful, incredible moments with these ghosts. Um, yeah. Scares that aren't necessarily jump scares, but are genuinely creepy. Uh, I think there's, there's a moment where uh, she's eating like a cup of ramen or something, uh, some kind of like snack that comes in a cup and she hears her mom oh, yeah. whis- whispering and like all of a, like you see a, like a ghost creepy dead hand, like coming out of the cup, trying to touch her. Uh, there's just like so many beautiful, cool moments like that where, and I, I, I love that, you know, again, huge spoilers, but the, the, the ghosts win in the end. It's such a satisfying it, 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 with a, with a movie like this, you know, you're, you're kind of primed from go for, to have it not be satisfying and having it not be, have it just been like a tragic story but it feels it's such a triumphant ending for her even though she loses so much in the process and i think the ghosts are just very very well done they look gorgeous the there's so much about the way that they're created from the sound to them being wrapped up in the still wrapped up in the plastic is just um awesome the the image of her mother wrapped up in the plastic when she finally does find where they've been hiding the bodies i love that we first see her head exposed and then you see the ghost like pulling it over her head to show how she actually looks. So it's all Estrella just knowing that it's her mom and imagining how her face really looks. There you go. Filmmaking. (laughs) That's oh, you can only do that in film to really show like, no, for real, she's just wrapped up this way. What I loved about this ghost is she's equal parts scary and comforting at the same time. She's trying so desperately to comfort her daughter. But that rage is what fuels her. She needs this fucker dead and they all need it. So she's trying to coax her daughter, but it kind of reminds me of moments like when you're a kid and your parents, I don't know if they're fighting or they're just mad. Let me, maybe they got off the phone with a telemarketer or something. They're raging about something. They're trying to comfort you while being really, really upset about something. And you can vibe with that. You feel it. So like your, your parent is just a little, abnormal at that moment. So you kind of fear that response. You're like, I'm not used to seeing you like this. And I I got that from Estrella a lot in this movie, how she's running away from her mom because she's running away from the grief, but also just 
we'll we'll look at it. I mean, <laughs> like I think any uh, you know, any average person would probably run away if they heard that coming at them that, that way. Uh I do wonder like what would have happened if she just stayed? I I could not figure out like what were you doing? The rage almost feels like something that she's trying to pass on to her daughter. You know, she's still trying mm. to parent from beyond the grave. Um because yeah. she's she knows that her daughter has to grow up real fucking fast and she wants her more than anything to to stay to stay angry to not give up you know obviously she would like to be avenged just like all the other you know the ghosts of the people that have been killed by this this monster but she she's she knows that her daughter might as soon as she grows up she might be susceptible to the same violence and the same tragedy that took her so she she wants her to stay mad. She wants her to not forget this. She wants her to, uh, you know, she's always trying her own cautionary tale to her daughter. Wonderful. Ah, you know, it's one of those things that you feel, but when somebody else puts it into words, like I got that smile on my face, just thinking about that, you know, it's, it's, it's it's watching a young, I mean, it's tragic too. Like I'm, I'm getting all emotional again, just thinking about this damn movie, but you know, you, you're you're watching a, a a young girl who is kind of processing what it means to be a woman in her society, and that's a pretty fucking heavy story to tell somebody. And then to tell it in this society is just it's just next level. It really is. Yeah, for sure. And she loses every other figure in the film that was keeping her comforted as well. Yes. Because oh yeah, also, you know, she is nothing. She be a mother, yeah, nothing. She can't be a mother to tomorrow anymore. She can't be a sister to Shine. She is pure orphan by the end of this movie, and yet stronger than ever. Yes, absolutely. And I think you know that's what her. I think her mom was successful. Like ghost, good job, ghost, ghost mom. Like she, <laughs> she prepped her, and it, like it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't. You know, it's not good to feel that those feelings. Um, it's tragic. It's it's so heartbreaking to watch. But she got the job done, and her daughter is is capable. And you hope she will go on to keep keep fighting this uh, this corruption in the city. Oh yeah, one would hope. I mean, in in the the uh, the the multiverse in which there are a bunch of sequels to this film, you know that they would follow Estrella, just kicking ass and, and <laughs> becoming a vigilante. Yeah, yeah, you know, starting her own like anti-cartel or some sort. And yeah, I mean, you say it's not beautiful, and I know what you're getting at with that. I just want to point out for, I guess, listeners as well, like, there is a beauty to tragedy that is, that's where the difficulty of it comes into play. You know, because we, we often think of beauty, we're thinking of like Greek sculptures, or we're thinking of a gentle creek or something you know something in nature a beautiful tree and there are moments in this movie that have it hey the last shots of this film have a more traditional sense of beauty to them since we're seeing things from Estrella's point of view you have the beautiful tiger you have the beautiful field that she walks out into but there's also just something about like yes it's painful to think about the fact that she had to be taught these things but the sense of beauty I get from the fact that it was successful and that she just had a really good loving mom that she did it. You know, you made a strong, good person before she was ever even an adult. That's where you can find these, these slivers of beauty in something quite horrible. 
And it's, it's movies like this that I think showcase it the best. And I'm in agreement with you. More people should talk about this damn movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, it's a, I'm a one woman cheerleading team for this film. <laughs> well, you, you got another cheerleader right over here. Whoop. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll preach the gospel on this one. Um, so I, I can see that our time's getting a little short. So are there any notes or anything, any final bits that maybe you wanted to bring up real quick before we round off? No, I mean, I just think people should watch it. It's, it's a really, it's a timely movie. You know, it's an, it came out in, t- uh, 2017 but just Mm -hmm. with all of the america is reckoning so much with its own violent past right now and violent future and violent present um and just uh, i I think it's a a movie that i that more people should watch and think about the um the sort of generational effects that those uh bouts of of violence have the the ripples that they have throughout for kids especially i know it's a awful time for children to grow up right now yeah. um yeah i think it's a a great film to to watch and and reflect on that that generational aspect yeah that's that's a kicker for me as well especially we come from a generation where we're we're kind of front and center about generational like trauma and the, that ripple effect you're talking about we we feel it really heavily the wave hit us really hard and so we can just see where it's going next and I, I do think that if anybody doesn't understand that, show them this movie. This is this is one I think will clear up a lot of that emotion in there. The power of emotion. It can teach you a lot of things. Well, then, uh, thank you so much for, you know, sitting down and talking to me about this, this wonderful film. I'm going to quickly wrap up then. Uh, so this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow up the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The Scream Teens, hosted by Gory Corey and Lena. The Road to Nowhere, hosted by R.C. Jara, and much, much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you are interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on on Twitter at underscore shockaholic. And you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org. Right now I'm uh, doing some coverage still for the Salem horror fest, which uh, by the time that this is coming out has just finished its live program, but there's still the virtual program to come. So be sure to check out that website if you want more on that. Uh, so dear listeners, what are your thoughts on tigers are not afraid? I'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter at beauty horror pod or via email at beauty of horror pod at gmail.com or you can join us on our community space on discord check out the twitter page for that uh, i want to thank you again mallory for sitting down with me today so where can all the people find you and your work and is there anything you would like to plug that you got coming up here in the near future uh i'm pretty easy fi- easily findable on the internet uh just go to malloryomera.com i'm at malloryomera on instagram and twitter uh my new book uh girly drinks which is a world history of women and alcohol is out october 19th um so it's pretty soon uh you can also this is a great time of year to buy my first book lady from the black lagoon um which is a biography of the woman who designed the creature from the black lagoon uh so i got a lot of a lot of stuff going on a lot, a lot of stuff. Yes, I know you're very busy, and I just can't wait to see what else uh, you're, you're whipping up and putting out there. Uh, so be sure to check out her socials, everybody. And, of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible.
Goodbye. There's no beauty Squad.